everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Katie. So welcome to the Ensign Global Health Speaker Night. Uh, so this is run by Scora ANU. So we've got a really great uh, panel discussion for you tonight. So what we're going to do is um, we've got three wonderful speakers here who are going to talk to you around the topic gender-based violence, control, power and culture. So gender-based violence is one of the most prevalent human, right viola human rights violations in the world. It knows no social, economic or national boundaries. Sexual violence underpins the health, dignity and security and autonomy of its victims, yet it remains shrouded in a, in a culture of silence. So tonight we're going to hear individually from each of the speakers um, on their specific the topic of gender-based violence. Uh, and they're going to share some of their experience there. And then we're going to open it up to discussion from the audience. So questions from the audience. There's a text line there if you're feeling shy, but otherwise feel free to just pop your hand up. We really want to make this as interactive as possible, so feel free to ask as many questions as you like. Um, so I'll just introduce our panel of speakers to you. Professor Emily Banks in the middle, whose resume includes work with the World Health Organization, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and the UK National Health Service Breast Screening Program. Uh, and tonight she's going to be talking about her extensive research in the field of gender-based violence. Um, she's done a lot with female genital mutilation, uh, which is basically the practice that involves partial or total removal of the external female genitalia, uh, and that's a big issue around the world. We've also got Professor Richard Eaves, who's worked extensively in Papua New Guinea as an anthropologist. And his research has focused primarily on gender, domestic violence, and also witchcraft within Papua New Guinea. He's just back from a recent trip there, uh, so I'm sure you're all looking forward to hearing about his experiences. And last but not least, we've got Dr. Alex Tyson, um, who's a sexual health specialist at the Canberra Sexual Health Centre and Clinical Forensic Medical Centre. Um, and she's got considerable experience in the field of uh, sexual violence uh, and treating those victims. So please welcome Professor Emily Banks to speak first. Thank you very much, uh, Katie. And I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Now, when I was asked to speak at this, I was, a, I was a little bit confused about what I was supposed to speak about because I know that I gave you a talk in first year which included my work on female genital mutilation. And I don't know if anybody, I don't know if you saw that or not. Would you be yeah, sort of general model? Anyway, so I didn't want to repeat that. So when I spoke to Katie a bit more, she said that as a group, you were interested, first of all, in, in having a bit of background, you know, what I knew about gender-based violence and maybe a little bit of an update on that. But really, we're interested in what you could do and about it, and your role as medical students and as um, future doctors and as people in general. So I may have completely missed the mark of what I've spoken to you now, but I hope you'll find it entertaining even if I haven't got it right. So I'm calling this talk Violence Get with Women Doing What You Can When You Can. Yesterday, I quite unexpectedly was the privilege, had the privilege of being guest of Mick Gooder, who is um, the who's one of the Human Rights Commissioners, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Human Rights Commission. And he, he's, he suddenly had five places to go to the farewell speech of Elizabeth Broderick, who is the Departing Sexual Discrimination Commissioner. And she was giving a talk, a half hour, totally brilliant talk, about her role for eight years as Sexual Discrimination Commissioner. And also uh, really talking about what she'd achieved, but also what, what can be achieved. And this was one of her slogans, was doing what you can when you can. Um, and she said that when she took over the position of sexual, uh, sex discrimination commission, she said, well, I'm not extraordinary. How can I possibly do this job? 
Um, but she said that really what she's done is when the opportunity arises and when she's in a position to do something, she does what she can. So this is, um, I've got two fellas first, actually. I have to apologise two quotes from fellas. But the first one is from Goethe. And this to me, it, 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 he says, thinking is easy, acting is difficult, and putting one's thoughts into action is the hardest thing in the world. Now, I, I find this a very useful thing, although it seems trite. It's actually that we have a lot of ideas about the way life should be and the way the world should be, and particularly uh, what justice is and what injustice is. But actually taking those thoughts and putting them into action is an incredibly difficult thing. And then I'd like to follow that up with a quote from Voltaire, which is, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And one of the problems with gender-based violence is that it's based on a series of absurd premises. It's based on the idea that women are inferior. Uh, it's based on the idea that women should be dominated. It's based on a huge number of different ideas, which I think my colleagues can probably fit you in a bit more on in terms of the sort of explanatory base for it. But there's very clear evidence that if people are raised, if, particularly if men are raised to believe that men and women are equal, the chances of them actually committing a sexual assault is very, very low. Um, but in societies where women are, don't have economic independence and are perceived as being the property of men or being inferior, then that is the time when gender-based <coughs> violence can flourish. So I then wanted to link this into some of the things I'm going to talk about next, which is that it follows that our beliefs are extremely important. And I would argue, and I think it really helps with, that gender-based violence is a continuum. So uh, I think that um, we can very clearly say that that at one end is sort of honour killings and uh, female genital mutilation, the kind of brutality that happens in Papua New Guinea, and the two deaths every week that we have in Australia of women who are killed by men known to them, most often their intimate partner. These, that's on the end of the continuum. But on the other end of the continuum is sort of everyday sexism and the kind of things that happen, and, and I hate to say it, that have been particularly well documented in the medical schools. So there's quite a lot... That, that we can do, not just in how we dedicate our, in where we dedicate our professional lives. And as, as doctors, we have the most wondrous, well, we have the most wondrous opportunity to think very broadly about where we're going to dedicate our professional energies. And I, I have to say, I was, I'm, ex, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here tonight because it's great to see a group of people who are doing something over and above the curriculum. I remember when I was at medical school, it was like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I've got to put my exams and I'm not going to be out there doing that sort of thing. So it's really terrific to see people taking the initiative and really thinking about what they want to do um, and what they can do to contribute. I do consider that... I don't know where my... Okay, so I, I think that in terms of how we live our lives and how we work to reduce gender-based violence, it's a question of balance. So I think um, it's very, very important to have both high standards and expectation and to retain a sense of perspective. So at this point, I would bring in the fact that Globally, we're in an enormously privileged position. The fact that I can stand up in front of you as a woman, having driven here on my own, that, that I have a career uh, and that, that I am able to actually engage my intellect and, and, and I, I've been brought up with the assumption that my brain is as good as a man's, that's an enormous privilege. It's both a global privilege in that there are women all over the world who are essentially subjugated from the moment they're born. And it's also a great historical privilege. So. My great-grandmother was a suffragette who was arrested for smashing windows. This is a picture of my great-aunt, who's actually on the other side of my family. So my mother's grandmother was arrested for smashing windows. This is Nancy Nicholson, 
She was a land girl. She used to ride a motorbike. She was the first woman in Britain to maintain her maiden name with a passport after she married. And she married Robert Grace, the poet. Um, and they had four children, two boys and two girls. And the boys took his last name and the girls took their last name. Um, and anyway, I, I just wanted to say that from a historical perspective, my great-grandmother had to fight for the right to have a vote. And in those days, suffragettes, basically, it was given, it had the same sort of connotations as feminist has now. So we think of suffragettes now pretty much universally as onya, right? even those extremely right-wing people. Um, <coughs> But it had the same connotations that people used to derive feminism now. And, and feminism really is about wanting equality, if you look it up in the dictionary. So I would say that if we maintain a historical and a global perspective, we understand we're in a very privileged position. Um, but, that, but we also have to think about high standards because every single day those standards are challenged. And if you stop noticing violations of those standards, you will never fight that particular injustice. I think you have to speak out and uphold those standards, but you also have to protect yourself. When I was at medical school, uh, when I was in first year, um, a lecture, our anatomy lecturer used pornography to illustrate the disorders. A uh, black, naked black woman in silver high heels, it had a racist dimension to, saying, notice how much more flexible women are on the back of the leg. I mean, it didn't even illustrate anatomy particularly. Uh, at the end of the lecture, my friends and I went down and said, look, didn't really add much to the lecture actually quite offensive. Maybe you might not use that. And he said, I'm a lecturer. I can say whatever I like. When you're a lecturer, you can say whatever you like. This is democracy. Um, and then I said, well, don't you feel you have some obligation to make the learning environment comfortable? Uh, and he said, um, look, Emily, what do you don't understand is there are two sexes on this planet, men who are aggressive and women who are passive. So I then sort of and then, and then I went down the pub afterwards and a whole lot of tutors in anatomy then berated me as to why I had, in fact, questioned the tutor's behaviour. But I can say now that I, I and my friends complained to the Sexual Harassment Grievance Council who said, oh, well, it sounds like a bad taste case. I'll just ring him up. She rang him up and according to her, he said, you're harassing me. This is sexual harassment. I can put whatever I like in my lectures. Nobody tells me to put, what I, you know, put anything in my lectures, not even the Vice-Chancellor. And she said... That can be arranged. <laughs> so it actually went all the way to the Vice Chancellor, uh, amazingly, I think, um, and he was no longer allowed to show pornography in his So that's, I think, an example of protecting yourself in that you speak out, but you use the system. Um, I had another example um, where I was. Uh, doing an obstetrics and gynecology term and it was the morning, first thing in the morning the operations were taking place. I used, I used to get up very early to ask the women for consent to examine them under anaesthetic. There was one woman that I didn't manage to actually see before we went to the operating theatre and I had a very archaic lecturer who said, please examine this woman's, uh, uh, you know, do an internal examination on this woman and check if her uterus is retroverted or entered. And I said, I'm afraid I can't do that, I haven't got consent. And he said, you will examine this woman. This is a teaching hospital. She is a patient. You must examine her. And at that point, I, I, I felt, no, so this is another way to do it. You have to appeal to a standard. You don't go, that's actually sexual assault, sir. I can't do it. You, you sort of have to say instead, oh, so anyway, I'll just say another example of protecting yourself is to go, oh, no, you might not have seen it, but the dean just sent around a circular. It's really important that everyone's consented, so you might not have seen it. And he, he then backed down. But at that point, I was in a very difficult position because the anaesthetist was standing there going, mm -hmm. 
and you know, there was a lot of pressure to actually conform to that. So I think appealing to a, a standard rather than actually a confrontation is good. But I'll tell you how not to do it, which is when I was in my final year, <laughs> I was physically um, manhandled and had various bad things happen to me with an orthopaedics tutor. I registered a complaint, didn't take it forward to the, um, to the, uh, through the system because I was a couple of weeks out from my final exams. But I did write him a letter to say, you know, you do this, this and this to me. I'd like an apology and a commitment you won't do it to anybody else. And he then wrote back to me and said, I think you should get your orthopedic teaching from somebody else. And he then spread the story through the... Uh, so I, I got messages from tutors at other uh, hospitals saying that students shouldn't complain about tutors' behaviour. And then I got him as an examiner in my final So I would say that's not a good way. So I think it's very, very important that we speak out and not hold standards, but it's extremely important that we do it collectively, that you use the existing systems, and you think very carefully before you do it. The other thing is to be strategic and opportunistic. So do what you can, when you can. I also think you should be courageous and tough. And I think that um, that includes what you choose to do in your professional life. So you may choose a career in global health, which requires travelling to very difficult places and doing great things, and and uh, really making a difference to those who are very disadvantaged. And, and I think that's a terrific thing to do. But you do need to retain your sense of humour. And I do think that one of the problems I have is with everyday sexism, when I go to conferences, I'll assume I have like one, at least one breathtakingly sexist moment. And I'm often thinking, what do I do at that point? Like, what is the best response? Could I go, that's really sexist? Do I get really angry? Or do I go, often I think it's better to just be funny. You go, ah, oh, for a minute there, that sounded really sexist. But I know you didn't mean that. And I have also tried just sort of some obscure sage remark, like, you know, do not mistake the limits of your vision for the limits of the world. <laughs> that often just helps us. <laughs> so, and then finally, don't let the stereotypes and expectations define you. And that goes for men and women, because there are assumptions of complicity and there are assumptions of how you're supposed to look and how you're supposed to be. And that's particularly why I put men's in this out there. Because if you can imagine what it meant to be like that back then, um, I think the least we can do is stand up and so I just this is I dedicate this to my daughter Tara. This is um, self-defense. I learned some of it at self-defense, and the rest I made up myself. Two days ago, my daughter came home and she said Axel Winterbottom was really harassing Tilda, so I took him out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in, so so she's doing karate. I said, Oh my God, Tara, you mustn't do that. And she said, Well, Sampa Jeff would say he definitely deserved it. And I said, What did you do? And she said, oh, Well, I did a karate sweep. And I just tipped him right over. He was quite surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so when I did my kind of triangle to impress, Tara, the fair rule is that there is no violence. You must go and say sorry to Axel Winterbottom. Um, but anyway, I have to say that she likes this part of us. And then this is my final bit of sense of humour. So it's really, I think about the role of men. <laughs> I'll read them out. So don't put drugs in women's drink. When you see a woman walking by herself, leave her alone. If you pull over to help a woman whose car has broken down, remember not to rape her. If you give a lift, give, if you're in a lift and a woman gets in, don't rape her. Um, so uh, carry a whistle. If you're worried you might assault someone by accident, you can hand it to the person you're with so they can call for help. And then don't rape. So 
I think that we spend a lot of time um, talking about violence against women and things that women can do to protect themselves from violence. Um, and one of the other things that, that, that really I was very touched by when um, when I was listening to Liz Roderick, um, and I think it's probably a note just to finish on, and although I realise that I may not have um, fulfilled my remit of talking about female genital mutilation, um, is that she was talking about a, a woman who came into a sexual assault or into a domestic violence centre who was in her 70s, um, and, and, and she was reporting it for the first time. And the, um, the worker said to her, well, why are you pulling in now? Um, she relayed a history of at least 40 years of abuse. Um, and she said, well, uh, my daughter and my granddaughter were visiting and um, my husband went out to the pub and he came home drunk and as he does mostly, he, he started beating um, My daughter did what she had always done, which is to run away and hide in the spare room. My granddaughter sort of retreated by the watch. And then after he finished, she came up to me and she said, Randy, you really don't have, you really shouldn't have to put up with that. And I've been learning about this at school. And here's a number that you can call um, to, to, to talk to someone about this. Um, and, and, and the grandmother said, and that's, that's what I've been Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much. That was great. That was, um, yeah, we didn't really have a specific. <laughs> idea for what you need to do. So Just as well. well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're going to have Professor Eves come and talk to us about um, gender-based violence as well. I'm afraid I don't have any jokes or <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> and I must confess, I'm the, I'm the non-medical person in the, in the room, I think. Everybody else is medical training. Uh, but uh, when uh, Katie first approached me, I thought this is a great opportunity. Uh, uh, I'm, as a, an anthropologist, I've done work in PNG in areas of health promotion and HIV, and I thought this is a great opportunity to talk to you about the sort of situation in PNG, which, as, I'll sh as you'll see in one of the slides, actually has a total of about 400 doctors, uh, and only 51 work outside the capital of Port Moresby. So, you know, if you're ever thinking about doing some um, practicals, I think, you know, have a think about public because they really do need some, you know, help in terms of getting medical practitioners out into the rural communities and the provincial hospitals. And I understand Katie's going to Kundiawa in the Highlands, and that will be a really exciting experience for her. Um, so, Papua New Guinea is Australia's nearest neighbour with the islands and the Torres Strait being only a couple of kilometres from the mainland of PNG. Despite its proximity, most Australians are fairly ignorant about PNG, its history, its economy, its cultural landscape, and its people. So I've just put a, some of the sort of basic facts on a PowerPoint there to sort of fill you in the background. Um, one thing about Papua New Guinea, getting reliable statistics is also a bit of a, bit of a hard, hard one. Um, uh, so the Population is really only an estimate. Uh, I think probably the capital port Moresby is probably only an estimate as well. Um, it's pretty unreliable statistics overall. The last census, which was in 2011, really didn't quite happen as it was supposed to. Um, but anyway, that sort of gives you an idea. It's a pretty culturally diverse uh, country. There's 836 languages, 
And we know that because there's a lot of um, Bible translators who go there and they can't go the languages and they're in the process of translating the Bible into just about every language in the country. Um, there are places in PNG where contact with European whalers, missionaries and explorers goes back 150 years, whereas others where first contact was in the 1940s and 1950s, in the area where Katie's going in the highlands is, is one of those. PNG sees itself as a Christian nation, with 97% of the population identifying as Christian. The PNG constitution has a stated commitment to equal human rights, and PNG is a signatory to the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Uh, just putting a few sort of, uh, uh, giving you a medical audience, I thought I'd get a few bits of data about the medical situation and the health situation. Um, <clears throat> despite such commitments, according to the most recent Gender Inequality Index, a composite that draws on three different dimensions, reproductive health, empowerment and labour market participation, PNG is ranked 133 out of 149 countries. Violence is also widespread, whether this is in the form of tribal fighting, sorcery and witchcraft-related violence, or gender-based violence. Indeed, gender-based violence, especially violence against women, is endemic, and there's not a day that goes by without some horrific report appearing in the national newspapers. The full extent of the problem in PNG, however, is difficult to gauge, since there's been no nationwide generalisable research undertaken since the Law Reform Commission research in the 1980s. Recent studies, such as those in the PowerPoint slide, next PowerPoint slides, uh, these are from Bougainville, um, point a rather grim picture. I'll just let you read those things. There is considerable pressure to conform to culturally defined gender norms and roles, with women or men who either step outside of those roles or breach those norms subject to sanctions, sometimes entailing the use of violence as a punitive measure. This is especially the case for women, and when looking at reasons behind violence against women, there is a, an expectation that women should obey their husbands or suffer the consequences. There is the view that women should only be beaten if there is a reason, and so violence is seen as an entirely appropriate corrective for even the slightest failure of wives to fulfil their, their perceived marital duties and proprieties. The 2013 Bougainville Family Health and Safety Study found that gender inequitable attitudes <coughs> are held widely by both men and women, with men generally having more inequitable views of women than, than women. For example, 72% of women and 85% of men agreed that a woman should obey her husbands. 45% of women and 60% of men agreed that if a, a woman does something wrong, her husband has the right to punish her. According to the anthropological literature, this belief is widespread in PNG. For example, the general real rationalisation for coercive violence against wives is that it is a corrective, educational, informative, or for teaching a lesson. Another author writes that men believe that, quote, occasional beatings are sometimes necessary in order to socialise women. The reason men gave for hitting their wives was that the wife did not prepare food or did not carry out her work. A common mistake was for a woman to accuse her husband's sex. For example, a report by Oxfam reported uh, that, only, that this was only evident in 9% of cases, so this is qualified by the recognition that men often use the excuse that women provide poor quality food or not working hard enough as a reason for violence. Certainly I did some work in um, 
uh, in Chimbu province actually in 2006 and uh, um, in a, a focus group discussion uh, a, a female pastor who was uh, doing a lot of counselling of women basically said um, that was the main reason why they were subject to violence they refused their husband's sex and no matter what men said in terms of you know hitting their wives because they disobeyed them or whatever that rubbish was all basically about uh, control of the woman and her sex. Um, this has also been found by research in other parts of Papua New Guinea. Lewis and colleagues found that 52.2 percent, this is out of 217 out of 415, of women felt that they could not refuse sex to their partners. The lack of control over sex leaving greater in relationships marked by physical violence and 71 percent of the women who said they were subject to this kind of violence could not refuse sex. Several scholars situate domestic violence in the context of unequal relations of power that exist in PNG and the control that men seek to assert over women. Some commentators have suggested that male angst and confusion in the face of rapid change have led to violence against women. An anthropologist who worked in the Southern Highlands defines this view, saying that these changes are giving rise to a comparative lessening of male power in relation to women, which sees women slipping from men's ground. The changes, such as the constitutional recognition of rights of equality, the availability of education and new career opportunities that have brought a new independence to women, disturb the traditional gender roles. Much violence against women is motivated by the fear because of the resultant weakening of men's ability to control them. Cindy Banks, uh, another uh, anthropologist, suggests that the violence by men against women arises mostly when men perceive that they have lost control over women when women are believed to have breached expectations of conduct. Thus, far from being simply impetuous and irrational, the violence that men inflict on women is an execution of power which has the effect of keeping women in place, subservient to men. So this is, um, this is uh, this last slide here is some of the reasons that uh, the Law Reform Commission in the 1980s came up with. Um, so one of the uh, in Papua New Guinea, they have a bride price, bride wealth um, uh, is used for marriage exchanges. So, in the past, it used to be an exchange that would go both ways, but increasingly, in the sort of modern era, it's it's seen much more as a sort of commodity relationship where a man's uh, exchanges money or goods for his wife and he thinks that she is the property of him as a consequence and that is a sort of justification used for, uh, for violence against women. Uh, many of these, like, like, I, like uh, this is from the 1980s, but many of these uh, beliefs are still very much in, in practice, even in places where they don't exchange wife, there is very much a, a, a view that uh, a woman should be under the control of man. And I think, you know, one of the points that um, Emily made uh, earlier on about the sort of culture is very important. In Papua New Guinea, there's very, um, uh, particularly in the highlands, there's a history of um, uh, cultural beliefs around men and women. Uh, for example, women are often seen as, because they give birth, uh, they menstruate, they're seen as polluting and dangerous to men, therefore men avoid them. So there's very much a, a, 
sort of antagonistic relationship between men and women. Um, and in the past, they used to have rituals uh, of initiation for the men where they would be uh, expelling what they saw as female substances from their bodies, and that could be in, term, in, in, in the form of bleeding. Uh, and for example, I was just up in the Highlands and I was talking to people, and they used to, uh, on the Highlands, they used to insert uh, things into the nose to make, to make, make it bleed. Um, and when the initial sort of uh, clearer sort of blood comes out and then dark blood comes out that's considered to be the sort of female female blood that they got through in utero and they also had things like cane swallowing where they basically push canes down into the stomach to to make them vomit so this is all about expelling female substances from from the men's body so they very much got a very uh, antagonistic sort of oppositional uh, gender construct here so in that sort of context when women are seen as uh, dangerous to men, you can easily see that it leads on to sort of notions of, about women uh, being put in their place through violence. Anyway, I'll leave it there because I'm sure you've got lots of questions and we'll uh, speak this as well. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. That was really interesting. Um, I don't know about anyone else here, but I certainly don't know a whole lot about PNG so it was really Great to hear that there are some initiatives going on there and hear your experiences. Uh, so our final speaker tonight is Dr. Alexandra Tyson. So please welcome to the Thank you for inviting me to this opportunity to have a chat with you. Please, if you've got any questions or challenging things, bring them up because just um, interrupt, wave a hand around, whatever. Um, with that sort of topic and five minutes to, to do something, I sort of decided to condense things down a little bit and of course you've got to speak from your own experience. So I've focused it on adult sexual assault um, and then maybe on one particular aspect and that of alcohol, which is something that is very cultural. We tend to look at it very favourably um, within our Australian sort of culture and um, so maybe make some suggestions that maybe it's not quite such a favourable um, aspect of our culture when it comes to sexual assault as, as part of gender-based violence. Um, I'm not trying to oversimplify what is a very complex issue as Richard and both Emily have you know, described um, uh, fabulously beforehand, particularly in the, the, um, the, the, the Richard was just talking about a very unusual practices that we would find quite um, uh, shocking, probably, in terms of this uh, difference between men and women and, and how we have to, or how men have to remove any femaleness from their body, which um, is, is quite extraordinary. Um, so it's not suggesting that alcohol is the only contributor to, to gender-based violence, but in our culture, I think it is an important factor of what shapes what we do, what we believe, what we think is good and bad within a social environment, and um, that has a big impact on gender-based violence um, and maybe there's opportunities for, for change there. Um, to give you a little bit of background about what happens here in the ACT, it's not that different to other similar uh, cultures, um, urban sort of developed um, wealthy countries where the reporters of uh, sexual assault at adulthood are pretty well the majority is women and the identification of the alleged assailants are predominantly men, 
Some of that violence is against other men, um, but predominantly against women. If you look at when sexual assaults tend to occur in that environment, there is a tendency for it to happen in the very early hours of the morning and the later hours of the night. So it is during the evening times. Uh, with the sort of broad bands there, they tend to focus around the, the sort of the o'clock, four o'clock in the morning time. And the days of the week when it happens tends to be towards the end of the week and the weekend where you have a major sort of socialisation and also as part of that a lot more likelihood of drinking alcohol and other minor sort of substances. Um, if we look at the relationships between the sort of the reporters and, and the alleged assailants of um, sexual assault within the ACT, again, it's not very different from in similar places where the majority or well, the relationship is not one of a stranger. The only real strangers are the sort of the, the 15% of no prior contact, and that's relatively low. Whereas in most cases, it's someone that they have an acquaintance with, it's a friendship or a friend of a friend or a colleague, something of that nature comes onto acquaintance, ex partners and partners. And then the other sort of a stranger type there is that more sort of what's sometimes called date rape kind of situation where it's someone you've met quite recently but had no prior contact with and that social sort of interaction leads to um, an, an event of sexual assault. When you look at what the um, reporter of the sexual assault has done, has been um, sort of the context of it is um, large proportion have been using alcohol in that prior period, sometimes other drugs as well. Um, the other drug use quite commonly um, cannabis, uh, occasionally methamphetamines as well, but not generally um, heroin. Uh, but that partly reflects the current drug using patterns uh, of the moment. But the, when we piece out some of the alcohol, it's an extraordinary quantity of alcohol that some of these women who are reporting sexual assault are um, taking beforehand now. That may be my own um, middle-aged naivety about what an average night out for a young person is these days, but I'm shocked by it. <laughs> um, you might not be, um, but it's not uncommon when, when they present to um, the sexual assault service that they're still very intoxicated and we have to delay the examination and the procedure until they sober up. So there's quite high um, rates of, of significant alcohol use as part of the sexual assault. <coughs> and um, the, the, I'll, I'll digress for one funny story, although one shouldn't, it's hard to find a funny story in this context, but one of the uh, more frustrating episodes was when I was called out in the middle of the night um, to see someone about two, two o'clock in the morning or something, and a uh, police officers bringing someone from Kuma to do the sexual assault because we service the surrounding area. And um, we, he, she arrived and um, she was quite unsteady on her feet and she was obviously smelling of alcohol and the police officer was absolutely mortified. He said she was not, and she was quite clearly unable to consent because she was quite slurred in her speech and quite heavily intoxicated. She was perfectly fine when I was... The, 
She opened the bag and she'd been drinking in the police car. She smelled this bottle of scotch on the way. So it was a complete disaster. They had to go back home. She had to sober up and I don't think we ever did the um, the forensic examination. But a slight Um What's also important though is what reports to us is the tip of the iceberg. Um, if you look at the, the ABS personal safety survey, most recent one was a few years ago, uh, there's a considerable amount of um, partner violence experienced within our community. Um, and it's for both men and women. And a proportion of that is sexual assault. But interestingly, very little of it is ever reported to police. Uh, and so it, it doesn't appear in statistics. Um, and we have to sort of um, guess at what is the difference between sometimes the people that report and, and those that, that don't. Um, one thing that uh, Emily alluded to was that um, there was a continuum of, um, of violence and um, I think there's also a continuum of, of sexual assault, that there are those rare, horribly, horrific, um, violent events with multiple, you know, someone who has, uh, perpetrates multiple assaults and severe violence, which are fortunately very rare, but then there's the very much more regular, um, common events which are of a more physically minor nature, which don't get reported to the police, don't come to our service, don't even go to A&E, which are no less destructive to the individual, either because of the frequency of them, where they may be happening very often, as Richard alluded to, in a partner relationship where it's often related to other forms of violence, other forms of oppressive behaviour, um, or they may be less frequent, but they still, um, the impact of even one episode of sexual assault can be extremely um, dramatic uh, and continue on through the life um, of the person and uh, that's uh, needs to be considered uh, even in these more frequent, maybe seen as, as lesser events. Um, so one of the most interesting bits of research I think is that's available to us is the Sexual Health and Lifestyle Survey. Um, and it's been done once before and coming out again in 2014. Again, we've got uh, a few minutes to spare in your busy curriculum. Uh, curriculum. So have a look at this because it's, it's the one of the, the best little insights into our sexual health if like where you happen to be a bit peculiarly interested in that. Um, and one of the things that they looked at this time, which was a bit more broader than previously, was experience of sexual coercion. And again, you can see that there's quite a gender difference between um, women experiencing um, considerably more. And what I was supposed how early that this the mean was, is that this experience of sexual coercion is happening in very young people, and that was pretty similar for both both men and women. Um, it was um, more likely to occur um, in, in women if they were rurally located and um, of lower socioeconomic status, but that wasn't the same for men, but they were the main sort of differences between um, the, um, the, the genders there. But they asked a different question this time, which they hadn't asked before, was about sexual experiences and intoxication. And interestingly, it was 50% both men and women. Um, 
And uh, so there's quite this strong connection between um, being intoxicated and making decisions that may not be very good in related to your sexual behaviour. <laughs> now, this might not all be coercion, but it's certainly there's a certain amount of regret there afterwards that um, when you're intoxicated, you do make um, maybe less optimal decisions. And that's particularly borne out around people's sexual behaviour, which may have all sorts of consequences um, in terms of an unplanned pregnancy, an unplanned sexually transmitted infection, a sexual assault, and the, all the consequences that they can, which can be, be quite dramatic. Um, now, this is another interesting survey, um, I think. Secondary school students. This one's about a couple of years old now. And this sort of... Um, I was quite horrified, to be quite honest, at the level of drinking that the students are identifying themselves in year 10 um, and year 12, um, where significant um, intoxication is happening at, um, at, at a very young age. And again, the strong or connection between um, sexual activity that was unwanted, unintended, unplanned um, around being intoxicated and the students themselves identified that intoxication was the main thing that led them to engage in sexual intercourse when they weren't really planning or wanting to rather than, rather than peer pressure. Uh, all right. Um, so, here's my little... I'll get off my hobby horse now. <laughs> Other than to say, I think, although alcohol is very much part of our culture, very much seems the positive aspect of our culture and many things, it, it also leads us to make bad decisions around our sexual behaviour. And in terms of what we could do both as individuals and as medical practitioners, less intoxication uh, might be good. And that's mainly because intoxication really does inability to consent. And um, it's as Emily's little list of things not to do, you know, identified is that if someone's intoxicated, they cannot consent to having sexual activity. Um, and although that's legally the case, it's, it's not always borne out in the legal context that, um, that someone's uh, being sort of completely unconscious on the ground is, is, um, and not saying yes is, is not an indication. Uh, in the courts sometimes it's not upheld, I should say, that they haven't consented. So less intoxication, encouraging our friends to um, family, people we know, to uh, to avoid that, and then encouraging protective behaviours when drinking and socialising to try and minimise, um, you know, your own as well as your future patients, um, you know, to to avoid those situations where too drunk too drunk people make bad decisions, um, and uh, the consequences can be quite significant. So that's it. So it seems like we've had a really diverse range of experiences here and we've talked about some pretty heavy topics tonight. Um, I guess we want to open up now to the audience for questions. Um, so please feel free to ask whatever you'd like. Um, and if you want to direct it to one or all of the speakers, please, please do. So we really want to get some discussion generated as well. So if anyone has follow-up questions, by all means, we'll, we'll kind of keep going with that. So I guess I'll start with Hamid. Um, thank you all for doing such an um, insightful discussion about gender-based violence. My question is um, to Professor Eves about um, opportunity here experience 
what, what sort of services are available to women who experience gender-based violence? Is it opportunity for them to sort of seek additional help? And what, you know, what has westernization? Has westernization changed access to more cultural beliefs and made, made it easy to seek help? One of the... Papua New Guinea is a pretty diverse country. Um, 85% of the population live in, in rural communities and 15% in urban centres. In terms of services for those in the rural communities, probably pretty non-existent. Um, although in Bougainville, the photo of the woman who had been assaulted, there was actually a... They have these things called Mary Safe House in some parts of, uh, of that island. Um, um, there has... The f- they have set up in the hospitals family support centres in a number of places. Uh, they were first instituted in 2003, and I think it's about 12. Uh, there's also recently quite a few uh, family and sexual violence um, uh, support units within the police, but these are not widespread. They're often reliant on donor funding, uh, particularly from the Australian government. Um, in terms of getting medical um, treatment. Also, there used to be a, a, a bit of an issue. It's changed now, but it used to be um, health... The, 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 the health health <laughs> system in PNG is... There's, you know, pro, uh, hospitals in the main sort of provincial um, towns, and then there's health centres and aid posts. And it used to be, and it's only recent, in the recent years that it's been abolished, but it used to be if a woman turned up for, uh, who'd been assaulted, she had to pay a fight fee. She had to pay a fine for treatment. Um, but that's been abolished. Um, and the same with if, if a man had turned up, this, uh, turned up who had been a victim of assault as well, he'd actually have to, be a, have to pay a fight fee as well, you know, like 50 kina. It's quite a lot for people in the rural community. So there has been some changes. Um, um, I do have a it's almost sort of fast book story from uh, when I was in the Highlands in the, uh, during the elections in 2007. I went to a local hospital out in a community. A man had been brought in. He'd been hit with an axe on the head. And uh, the, the male nurse at the hospital was uh, demanding 50 keener fight fee from this man who was not really in a state to, <laughs> he was sort of uh, in sort of deliriums he'd lost a lot of blood he'd had been hit across the head with an axe um, so you know sort of, it was almost fast um, so there has been some changes but the support service is not really there uh, there is a there is a national helpline set up now which is uh, toll free but uh, a lot of a lot of people out in the communities wouldn't necessarily know about it. Um, in terms of westernisation, the, one of the main sort of aspects, uh, it's not, well, it's Christianised, missionisation sort of has accompanied um, uh, westernisation in PNG. And although some churches sort of articulate the view that the, the man is the head of the household and the wife should obey him, Quite a few churches, particularly the more Pentecostal type, actually uh, put arguments that 
in the household it should be mutual submission. One should submit to the other and the husband should submit to the wife and the wife should submit to the husband. And they actually um, suspend people from their church if they've if a man's assaulted his wife, he will get suspended from the church. So there are some quite positive changes going on in that way. But um, um, in terms of the law and justice response, um, there was a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, Human Rights Watch did a um, did a report on um, Papua New Guinea and the police, and a lot of police were involved in um, sexual assaults of people who were you know, gone to gone to help gone for help or been arrested um, uh, you know they often arrest sex workers and then sexually assault them um, so the, the actual legal legal law and justice sector response has been pretty poor um, I think the government is trying to address it and donors are trying to address it but you know it's these things take time I think it's a cult, the cultural attitudes are quite you know pronounced there um, there's a lot of um, a lot of cultural baggage that needs to be sort of displaced before the change can happen. Sorry, can I, I'd like to follow up on that because I know if, if Kamalini Lokuge had been here, one of one of the main pieces of work that she's been doing is a case management centre in Leh in Papua New Guinea and that follows on from a, a service that Médecins Sans Frontières provided in Leh which was really medical care of people who had been victims of family and sexual violence. And we've calculated that around 5% of the entire female population of the, the catchment area had actually attended for medical care for sexual assault during the period that that centre was open. So the levels of violence against women and sexual assault are absolutely extreme. Um, but one of the things that the community groups had had noted was that that centre, you know, akin to all the, a lot of the medicines on frontier work, is really centred around medical care. But what was happening was that the people were sort of being patched up and sent mm. back to the same place. And so the community said that what they really wanted was a case management centre, which is where women and, well, and the victims of sexual and family violence could come and then be, say, for example, placed in a safe house. They'd have a magistrate that they could work with through the legal elements. The, the place could also serve for advocacy and, and part of pushing for cultural change. And that that organisation has been funded by this, by DFAT, from, by the Australian government. It's been going for about a year and it's, it's serviced about 400 um, uh, survivors of, of family sexual violence so far. They also do repatriation to different places, so people are in, or in the same places. So there's... But there's one of the things that, because it is so completely normalised, the politicians are perpetrators. There are people, at one point, someone who was actually launching the opening of a sexual violence centre said, oh, and by the way, I'm a perpetrator. You know, that, that is it's completely mm. normalised. Um, so that the role of medicine and, 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 and services to actually advocate that this is not accepted, you know, this is mm. not appropriate, um, is, is another part of that. Um, so I'm just I'm recovering from a course on losing my voice. Just following up on that, um, are, are there sort of any educational programs and incentives in play to educate the children that are growing up within the system to shift their attitude within the population? I think there are some, but I can't really talk in detail. I think there's a group called Level Playing Field, which is going into schools and and trying to um, to educate people about gender gender issues. Certainly, I think. You know, I've been going there since 1990 was when I first went there. And I do think there is a shift. I think you can find people in, you know, most re most, re most recently I was in the Highlands doing some research with some, uh, coffee farmers and 
you know, one of the communities where we were doing research, you know, some of the men were talking about gender equity, you know, so there is, it, some of these ideas are percolating out, and I certainly, my my original fieldwork was in a place called New Ireland, and, and I spent about, well, I spent about two years there altogether, but, you know, I've noticed a shift in terms of when I've gone back after my initial fieldwork, there's less tolerance of, you know, violence in the community, whereas, when I was first there, you know, just about all the young men that I knew had actually had raped women. You know, whereas when I went back later on, like you know, ten ten years afterwards, was you know they were sort of denying that that had happened and they were you know repulsed by the idea. So the and the community where I was actually instituted some local laws, and one of the laws was if somebody hits their wife, they get reported to the police. So there are places where it is changing. I think, you know, um, but Emily's right, it is often people who are in the positions of power, politicians. There's been countless pictures on the front page of the national newspapers and PNG of, of wives of policemen who have been beaten by their policemen husbands. So, you know, it's it's often the people who are in the positions of power that are, you know, perpetuating this sort of stuff. But, you know, I do... I have come across a lot of men who are rejecting it, uh, and a lot of Christian men, you know, are invoking, um, you know, invoking uh, more egalitarian ideas and, and, and mutual discussion about issues within the household. So things are changing, but you know, change is quite slow. <laughs> you all work in areas that are very ingrained and entrenched cultures of violence, whether they be in PNG, in female genital mutilation, and in alcohol-related violence. Um, so I just wanted to know if, um, what you guys thought the best way or the best first step is to shift that culture <coughs> in the right direction. Yeah, oh, I get the... <laughs> Oh, look, I don't know if it's the best first step or anything. I think that's, that's a big ask. Um, but I think Emily alluded to that in her presentation, is, is, is sometimes you take any little opportunity as it as it comes along um, where you see something that at a um, social, social level or at a, whether that be in big social context or a, or a one-on-one social context, if there's a situation where there's... Um, gender inequality being promoted as okay, you challenge it. If it's more serious and where there's something going on that's putting someone physically at risk, well, then you, you challenge it um, and you say it's not okay. I mean, um, and I think that's if everybody embraced that to a greater degree, it would percolate more and more through and, and become more and more normalised. So, um, you know, when I see some very tall man shouting at his very small partner in the car park, I just go up there and I stare at him and I say, and I then I look at her and I say, "Are you okay?" You know, things, things, those sorts of opportunities come come around. Then you've got your professional lives where you know you can do things on a, on a therapeutic basis, but then you might go something broader and do something political or, um, you know, to try and, and change those. But I don't think there's one solution. <laughs> it's yeah. too complex. I, mean, I would say that that. Um, in, I, I became a public health physician after I actually did my internship here a long time ago, longer than I think. Um, and and what you what you see in public health is the the approach is that in order to really change things, you have to have change on a very granular level. 
but you, you, you bring that change about at multiple levels. So if you think about how we've achieved really amazing levels of tobacco control, despite the fact we have 2.7 million smokers, you have legislative changes, you have, uh, you have changes that are about excise and things that are very effective on a broad level, you then have like workplace uh, initiatives and you have things directed at individuals and then you have things that you do about the advertising. So it, it's, it's, it's a, you always need a multi-level approach. So if you think about how over the last 100 years we've achieved the levels of um, equality that we have and, and we still have huge pay gaps, we still have discrimination, we still have you know, women not in senior positions, all that kind of thing, but we do have the vote. So those started with those sort of campaigns, first of all, to have things like the vote and to make sure that there was, there was actually the ability of women to, rep- to be representatives um, and, and, all, and those changes happen at multiple levels. But you really see in PNG, I think there's one woman Maybe in the parliament, and she's three. The oh, three. There's, three. Few, yeah. there's three, and one of them's white. So yeah. there's very, very few. Yeah. Um, uh, there's three. Uh, the one you think about, Dan Kelly, she's not one of them. All right, so there's three. Yeah. Anyway, so there's very. You can really see often it's that that things are reproduced through all of the structures, and the, and the one thing that Elizabeth Broderick talked about too was that. Quite often what you need early on is temporary special measures, you'd call it. She said it doesn't work to just add women in the stir. Um, that we saw it immense and we sort of thought, oh, we've got half and half female graduates and half male graduates, therefore we will get equality in the senior positions and that just isn't the case. So, um, and it's also because as people get up a hierarchy, they have more and more invested in maintaining the hierarchy in its form. And there's also a thing which is known as homosocial reproduction, which is that people tend to to mentor and support and appoint people who are like themselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and one of the things you do see is when people are really committed to excellence, they're often committed to diversity because excellence is diverse. So if you see a workplace where everybody is a, a middle-aged man, the chances are it's a mediocre workplace, actually. <laughs> no offence to middle-aged women. <laughs> I, I guess in my sort of response would be in terms of, I think one of the important things is primary prevention. Um, I think it's, you know, the PNG is a, a classic case in terms of there's a lot of good legislation on the statutory books, but it's not actually... There's not the political will or the you know, practical will to to um, to enforce it. Uh, so I th- really think one of the and it's it's very. I guess it's for the last ten years or so. There's been a focus on working with men. I think it's really important that men take responsibility to speak out against violence against women, uh, to confront people uh, in a way that Emily talked about if they're being sexist hold them to account um, and I think um, in, in some places that, and even in PNG there are uh, men's, men's groups against violence but I think it's really important in terms of when those sort of interventions uh, develop that gender equality is a key foundation because often when men get together they start you know supporting each other in the bad behaviour and I don't think that's really the way to go. I think you need to start from the, you know, the base notion of gender equality and go from there. And I think in PNG, I think it's really important to have uh, good role models. There's a lot of, um, a lot of, um, there has been a, a 
in recent years, the Australian government through AusAid uh, and now DFAT has sponsored sporting stars to go up there, Rugby Union, you know, Mal Meninga and a number of others who have gone to PNG and are on posters talking out against violence. So it's really important to have local role models who speak out against it, who actually uh, their relationships with their partners, their wives are actually based on authority rather than you know, them being um, somehow superior. So that's really an important thing. You've got to be careful with your sports stars. Yes, that's true. Yes. Oh, I'm so. It's fantastic, and I and I do think um. Yeah, yeah, and and I I mean I've had a couple of uh, you know like any woman I've had a few experiences of being assaulted in various ways, and one of the things that I have found most difficult in those situations has been men being complicit in it. So when I've been in a situation of being victimised, other men are laughing, actually, because mm. they're uncomfortable and they don't have, they're, they're not able to intervene. So I've had at least two episodes where actually my, my memory of the men who are actually standing by and watching it happen um, is actually part of the most, is one of the most painful parts of the, pro, of the process. So I think, I think it, but it is that thing where you, you have to be prepared to, to have courage. Like it is a bit, I mean, Going up to a woman in a car park and going, are you okay? Like that's potentially quite embarrassing. But I think you have to put your embarrassment and your and whatever thing it is that stops you intervening aside for, you know, if you do see something that's going on. Because in some ways we think the easiest thing is, is not to do anything and, 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 and that's part of having standards and, spe- you know, speaking out. Mm-hmm. Sort of like what you walk, isn't that that saying that, Really, what you walk past is what you've actually approved of. I mean, you mm. may as you may as well have actually been con- uh, agreed with it if you don't do anything. Sorry, this person here was about to ask. Oh, sorry, okay. Okay. I'm just feeling like we've had. I hate to say it, we've had three questions from men. Yeah, it was it was kind of already answered. But um, my question on the topic of crime prevention, you mentioned education, but I was more interested in. Um, whether there is a place for educating women and empowering them, like who are part of the culture that are, tend to be victimised by um, gender violence, um, is there is there a place for that particularly when um, in cultures um, with gender based violence, um, a lot of the men would um, use like use violence in order to kind of make their women feel inferior. So education might be seen as a yeah. threat to them. Yeah. Is is there a place? I think definitely. Yeah, certainly. In PNG, when I think some of the stats that I put, uh, talked about in terms of w- women believing that it's okay for, um, for their husband to hit them, you know, it's very high. You know, most recently in the research that we we're doing, one of the questions we were asking, we we're asking questions around, you know, if it's okay for a husband to hit his wife if she uh, doesn't prepare food, if she um, uh, uh, takes family planning, all these sorts of things. And women were actually quite, you know, positive that this is okay mm. so yeah i think there is certainly a need for uh for education and um, you know interventions that address you know that aspect yeah do you, do you think there, there might be problems with um uptake if if there is that fear that if like men were not that learning battle of ways to defend themselves I think it is an issue. Yeah, certainly, um, I was involved in doing some research in um, 2011. Actually, it was from when that photo was taken, and we um, 
research team. I had a, a woman in the research team, and she was interviewing uh, a woman, and her husband um, sat behind the wife at the start of the interview, and he wanted to hear what she was saying. Basically, we had to sort of abandon, abandon the interview because you know, he was frightened that she'd say something about what he was, you know, what he was like, and that he'd been involved in violence and all sorts. So yeah, I think certainly men um, men react very negatively. So certainly when you do research in PNG, you have to be very careful about protecting uh, uh, women and make sure that you know, the, the husbands and the partners don't know what the women are going to be telling them. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that Camelini has mentioned in the research that she's looked at is that in PNG it's, it's unusual compared to other countries in that actually being educated doesn't protect you from violence, mm. that it's seen across all mm. social strata. So they had someone who was working in the clinic who was a doctor who was being um, beaten. Mm. The other thing is that gang rape is quite common and it's used as a kind of revenge when women are seen as getting too independent. So if a woman stands up to her husband, there'll often they'll, there'll be a sort of retribution, which is through a, a male network to get back. And, and in fact, um, one of the episodes that had happened, um, you know, that you know, just sort of the horror of it is, um, there was a, a a perpetrator whose 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 victim had come and been helped by a particular centre, and though he then, well, this is what was alleged, he then organised for a gang of his mates to rape one of the nurses at, at the hospital. So um, these, there's actually there's so there's only so much you can do um, by by um, educating women when what they're facing is, is so I mean it, it'll help gradually but mm. when what they're facing is so extreme it, it can be very difficult um, uh, so so the it has to happen you know across the board in lots of in lots of ways and women do need actually to be made physically safe because of the actual yeah. level of the violence that, that's happened. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any studies on how to best educate children about gender awareness around adult cultures? Mm. Or any any cultural strategies that <laughs> <laughs> seem to work when obviously someone can come in and tell you all about these things, but you're going to go home to the same culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be growing up anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure. Can I answer yeah. that question? Certainly, in Australia, I mean, people. The schools have a really important role mm. generally, but I think that you know, it's like whatever you're talking about, whether it's health mm. education, whether it's um. Uh, education about society, they can at least provide an alternative view of reality so that even if you go home to that, you've at least had that exposure. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of the actual detail of the educational techniques, I don't know. Yeah, no. But one of the things that was, I think, is very positive, um, one of the people that the Case Management Centre is working with has set up a, a whole organisation for university uh, students. It's called Voice. And it's really about leadership training and empowerment of young people within Papua New Guinea to then go out into the schools. So it's a, so often peer-led learning is really important that people that you would look up to, but are similar to, you know, not that much older than you, go out into the schools and, and, and particularly to have male role models in that who say, well, look, here I'm a big success and I don't beat up anybody. Um, when, when, if, 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 if people equate male power with violence, it's really important to have alternatives if, Models of power that aren't equated with violence. Mm. Nothing I would add. Mm. Yeah. 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 Y
Yeah. <laughs> just, other, other than it's, it's something that happens over a very long period of time. I think mm-hmm. it's not something that happens in one generation. It, it's got to be a, a gradual process of cultural shift. And just on, on that note of uh, culture, I'd just like to ask a question. Um, so how can we balance the need for changing uh, and challenging cultural norms? Um, for example, gendered violence, um, the idea of ownership of women, and also uh, female genital mutilation, um, while still upholding sensitivity and diversity within those cultures. Um, I know, yeah, this is quite important in FGM as well. So how, do you, how do you challenge that culturally? I can start with that. So um, I think it's been very interesting because one of the aspects of female genital mutilation is basically similar to the violence of Papua New Guinea. It's most of the countries in which it is widely practised, it's actually completely illegal. Um, but there are places in, you know, if you go to the Sudan, it, it's the majority of women would have had the, um, both the, the labia minora and majora and the clitoris cut off and um, the remaining edges stitched together. So in FGM type 3 or infibulation, it's illegal in those places. Um, but when you're talking, and, and often when um, colonial sort of forces or, or, you know, foreign countries come in and, and, and say, you mustn't do that, it's really terrible, it, it's often, it will reinforce practices often because it's seen as a defence of culture. Um, so one of the most important things is for people within the culture, within those groups, to actually be part of championing change. Um, and also there's been quite a lot of work done on really uh, kind of... Um, disentangling some of the myths about what is and is not related to culture. So there are some places where people say that it's it's part of Islam to have female genital mutilation, but in fact it isn't part of Islam. It's actually part of the cultures that were there before the Islam came along. But it's certainly been really important to have the the initiative for change coming from within. And one of the and the project that I was mainly involved with, the WHO project on female genital mutilation and obstetric outcome, actually had the point of having had a really important point of having investigators who were in each of those countries who were from that country and have dissemination of the findings and implementation of findings really from more of a grassroots level than any sort of foreign organisation coming in and imposing them. The other thing is that in a lot of cases, these practices tend to change with increasing levels of uh, female uh, economic independence. So one of the things about female genital mutilation is that in some places it's seen as a precondition of marriage and if women are unable to actually survive if they can't marry, the, the alternative for the family, even if, you know, and everybody loves their kids, there's no question that everybody loves their kids and they want the best for them. But if you're thinking, well, if I don't get this done to my daughter, um, she won't actually be able to survive as an adult, um, then that's, you're really putting someone in a bit of an impossible position. But if there's more economic development, if there are more options for women, then it's actually sort of general development that will often um, make those make people be able to make um, choices that don't involve violence against women or girls in this case. Actually. An interesting comparison is the rapid change in male genital mutilation that happened in the 70s, 80s yeah. in Australia, particularly where circumcision, which was pretty well standard, disappeared um, pretty well over a very short space of time with nothing more than you know, <laughs> mm. a, a bit of an attitude change um, within the medical profession partly and then within the community. So change can happen extraordinarily quickly sometimes, but it depends what um, what the cultural structures and things are behind it. I don't know if it was because it was doing it to me. 
is there an aspect of that um, just because with female genital mutilation it wasn't it wasn't ever a medical practice or was it not in a it is a medical oh it's still yeah. so, so in Egypt it's yeah. the vast majority of, of girls and women and it's, and it's been medicalised wow. and what's quite interesting is that there's been this sort of tension within the medical profession of saying well Part of why it's so harmful in lots of places is that it's being performed in unsterile oh, conditions, yeah. and it would be great if it was, you know, performed under anaesthetic. But, but actually, that would often make mutilation more extensive. Mm-hmm. And in terms of women's sexual pleasure and what's remaining, um, but but there's been WHO has an absolutely clear line on that: is that doctors should not in any way be involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it is it is an interesting uh, question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a question for Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, as a doctor of sexual just wondering if you had any insight for us as to how um, sexual or general um, violence can affect these people's lives, so the, the victims, um, both men and women? Yep. Um, in, a, in a multitude of ways. And, again, there's a spectrum of effect on um, for the individual. And the, the effects for men and women are, are pretty much the, the same if they've experienced um, any traumatic experience. And it basically comes down to um, a traumatic experience of a, of a particular nature. Um, so there are the higher rates of poor mental health in general, particularly anxiety and depression, self-harming, um, and that can lead then on to sort of more um, sort of global effects in terms of work performance and ability to, to function in the workplace but also socially. Um, and uh, sometimes more specific things related to sexual activities. So, and, and this is sometimes seen more in women than men, um, that they have less interest in sexual activity, less satisfaction within their sexual relationships. And that's been particularly shown in the um, the Australian Sexual Health Survey, I think it was that one, where they did a big multivariate analysis looking at um, the specific, or against mental health and anxiety and depression and sexual satisfaction across two, whether they'd experienced sexual coercion things. So um, it was certainly borne out that they were um, yeah, long-term effects. Is that you, enough detail? You mentioned that, um, that there were some male victims of sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, obviously it wasn't nearly as much as, as it, It's a much females, smaller... But- proportion and it may be that they're more underrepresented um, than in women. Uh, that's un- uncertain um, because there hasn't really been very much research on that. Some of the, um, and, and some of them have been sexually assaulted at, at a young age and perhaps formal childhood sexual abuse. But there's certainly adults and in many of those cases it's males onto males and that may not and that's sort of in a sort of a homosexual situation, but also in a sort of a a gay bashing kind of situation. There's different sort of um, dynamics going on there, but also occasionally it is women assaulting men. And with that, I guess um, maybe underreporting by men who might feel some sort of guilt around that or. And sort of disempowerment and all the sort, as women experience the same thing, and that may be maybe more magnified, in, you know, with our cultural expectation that men are more powerful and, and shouldn't be um, victimised in this, this sort of way. Yeah. Uh, take a couple more questions. Um, just a quick comment and then a question. Um, firstly, just on that point, um, apparently the first rape centre for males was um, started up last year in. 
Um, one of the Scandinavian countries, which I think is really good in terms of um, male health and awareness of sexual assault of males um, and female countries. Um, the question was about male circumcision and the decreased rates um, through a bit of health awareness and studies and stuff, 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 uh, things like that. Um, I was just wondering if you believe that male circumcision rates decrease because of the um, predicted health benefit that wasn't, um, and whether it still occurs in Jewish cultures um, and cultures where that's a norm. Um, I, th- I think circumcision still happens in Jewish cultures, but there's probably a variety depending on their orthodoxy as to whether you know an individual practices or not. But it's still um, supported there. Um, another question: I'm, I'm not too sure you, you meant is is um, why did they they make the change from circumcising to not circumcising? Yeah. And, and I think it was be- because. There was an awareness, I think, that, that this was being done to small defenceless babies who didn't have much of a say in it and that there wasn't good evidence to see that it was medically required. And, um, you know, if you compared sort of problem rates in a country which circumcised regularly with a country that didn't, there wasn't really a great um, or any you know, sig- significant survival benefit or morbidity benefit from, from circumcision. Um, I mean, there are problems that, you know, medical problems that occur in uncircumcised men that you never see in circumcised men. So, you know, there are some consequences from it, but but there may be other benefits in terms of sexual pleasure and, and, you know, lack of an unnecessary surgical procedure. Um, And there there was always the odd odd disaster where a a, a baby would lose his penis. I mean, there were just... But yeah. I think it was almost like a fashion, don't you think? It was, I think it was, it was sort yeah. of like a medical fashion. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of know. just seen as cleaner and neater, neater and, and, and then everyone, tidier. Yeah, something. seriously. <laughs> I don't know. So medical fashion in P&G too, actually. Yes, uh, yeah. Except for they're doing it themselves. Yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's, there's culturally there's all sorts of um, yeah. body alterations that have yeah. happened and, and yeah. the genitals have been included in that and quite common. You know? in, yeah. in Papua New Guinea, they... Um, uh, they insert a, things too. There's a fashion for they cut the f- top of the foreskin so it sort of hangs down. Uh, there's also they insert ball bearings. Ball bearings uh, under the skin, yeah. They get uh, handles of cups and they file them down and mm. insert them in the, into the penis. Uh, they're also injecting silicone into the penis as well. Oh, and all sorts of caustic nasty yeah. things to, to make it sort of fibrose and that sort of thickens up the skin and yeah. it's a bit bigger. But the rationale for this is because they have this Men seem to believe that uh, women will find more pleasure in a man mm. who's got five ball bearings in his penis. I don't think they've actually. There's a research project for you. I don't think they've actually talked to many women about it, but they seem to be under. It's, the quite, it's quite interesting, actually, because one of one of, <laughs> one of the most interesting pieces of research um, I saw was it was done. It was in the 1960s, where. Um, uh, regarding female genital mutilation, there were two. There were two myths. The first was that um, if women didn't have it done, they would become prostitutes, and the second one was that um, it was sort of tighter. It made it was more fun for the man. And this um, gynaecologist and obstetrician in in Sudan actually did a survey of women attending. Um, I know he did a survey of. First of all, he did a survey of women who were prostitutes and found that actually they were more likely to have had the full FGM mm-hmm. than women attending his antenatal clinic. So he dispelled the myth that, that they would become prostitutes. And then he interviewed men who had more than one wife because they're, they're 
polygamous, um, and 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 who had a wife who was one who was circumcised and one who wasn't, or one who had female genitals and one, and asked which ones he preferred, they preferred to have sex with, because there was this idea. Um, anyway, he found that they in general preferred to have sex with the woman who hadn't had it done. So this it was a specific piece of research, statistically designed to address these two myths. And, can, and basically busted them. It didn't actually stop the practice, but mm. Mm. interesting. Yeah, we'll take maybe just a couple more questions in the interest of time. So you go, Ty, and then Oh, so my question is sort of more simple, philosophically. Given that this violence is based upon gender, I um, just want to see your comment about the more hyperpolarized you are in terms of gender identity. Do we see more violence associated in terms of gender-based violence? And is it like, I suppose for me, I'm seeing more, more in Australia, is this type of separation of, more, is it more um, diversion of the gender identities, more hyperbolic writers taking from in the last five, ten years or something like mm. Would that be, is that a significant contributor towards the violence that you see in this particular case of gender based violence? Certainly in Papua New Guinea, it's the cultures in the highlands where uh, the the sexual antagonism and sort of beliefs about bleeding and and all that sort of all those sort of things are uh, most pronounced. Whereas in the islands, there's sort of less violence, and they don't have they have some like that. But that they have some beliefs about women bleeding, but they don't go into the sort of you know bleeding themselves or uh, you know putting things down their throat. So yeah, I think that there is a the men in the highlands are you know they're basically brought up to be very aggressive. Know, very assertive, almost on the border of aggression. So, and I think um, that's probably less so in, in in the islands. Although, you know, there's the Bougainville case show. That's that's also quite violent as well. But you know, certainly, from my experience of the, in doing field work, both in the islands, in the highlands, and PNG, when I was in the field for like fifteen months, I you know, I didn't see the sort of level of violence that I've seen in the Highlands. You know, I didn't go into a health centre and see that somebody had had an axe put into their head, you know, when I was in the Highlands. But, you know, that was one of my first experiences in the Highlands was, you know, seeing somebody like that. Another person had been, you know, stabbed when I was there. So, you know, it's, the level of violence is much greater up there and that's where the sexual antagonism is much, is much greater than it is elsewhere. It's funny, actually, because I think that that polarisation, particularly what you see in the media, this absolutely just like the, the sort of music film clips that are just, you know, they're basically pornography, really. Mm. Um, uh, that is coexisting with a much greater tolerance of a sort of gender spectrum. So it's mm. sort of, it's what's quite interesting is it's, it, it may be that we're getting more at the extremes, but we're sort of getting more in the middle as well. Mm. Um, so I, 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 I'm just not sure what, what I would say is happening broadly i mean I, I tend to look at statistics that's my job really so i might i might sort of ask you know how hyper masculine and hyper feminine and how, how are we how are we going to define that but there are so many different vantage points now too i mean if you if you if you live an online existence there's a huge array of sort of gender queer um kind of identity assertions out there the the term mx instead of ms or mrs or mrs now accepted in the oxford english dictionary at the same time you've got people on massive amounts of stories and 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 it's and the other thing is that by and large women are supposed to have absolutely no body hair so mm, as yeah. someone who's you know 
did a few pap smears back whenever. It was completely, you know, nobody would have apologised for having hair back then. I understand it's quite regularly the case that women will apologise for actually having pubic hair. Do they apologise to you for having they pubic do. hair? They do, they do. Or no, well, it depends how old they are. Um, <laughs> yes, it's what we would call a cohort effect. It's a cohort effect, absolutely. <laughs> Look, I think it's interesting times at the moment because there is this broadening of, of gender identity and questioning, you know, it, it's not a dichotomy anymore, it's a polycotony. I don't know there's one, there's a word for it, but there's every, every week there's a different sort of gender identity or I have no identity. Or and lumbosexual is yeah, one of them. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Lumbosexual. Lumbosexual. Yeah, don't oh. let's get a beard and a flannel. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> lumbosexual. Is this, is this derived is from it, lumberjack? Is it the, lumberjack and, and sexual. sexual. <laughs> no, the antidote for, for um, Conchita. Well, there's, well, there's metrosexual. <laughs> metrosexual. That's where you don't wear a We're friendly. Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and yet the, <laughs> um, so that one says, well, will, if that persists, will it sort of even out the gender sort of disparities or will that remain within the heterosexual, strongly gender-identifying group and there'll, there'll be this sort of other dichotomy of, of those that gender-identify and those that don't sort of thing and we'll have a different sort of polarisation. There's also an increasing amount of use of pornography um, because it's so much more accessible on the internet and what kind of effect that has in terms of what people's beliefs are around what is normal sexual behaviour. Um, not, all, I mean, some of that is appallingly violent um, and some of it is, is just kind of weird, but, I mean, and some of it's just... A lot of it's degrading. Degrading. Women, a, lot a lot of it is degrading, degrading and, um, you know, and some of it's just very, very unrealistic. Um, but... It is have it, you know there's potential for it to have an enormous effect on what people's attitudes are towards sexuality, what is normal sexual, what acceptable sexual behaviour, and what isn't. We'll just in a sense have to wait to see what what happens. The time of flux, change, as always. But from a medical point of view, I'm beginning to see more acceptance of the idea of a female brain and a male brain from a medical mm. point of view, and that that itself is sort of brain. driving this issue mm. about gender-based violence. Well, I suppose that there is this um. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, I think there was a time when people equated equality to exactly being the same. Mm. And I think mm. that probably the conversation has shifted slightly to say that there are gender-based differences, but that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be treated equally. Yeah. So yeah. so I think, um, and so as a bit of a red herring when they go, you know, I mean, that was what my horrible anatomy tutor used the pornography used to say he used to go oh women are hopeless at spatial relationships you'll never be able to do anatomy you know and I at that point hadn't realized that most sonographers and crystallographers are women mm-hmm. and if you need to know three dimensions you watch those sonographers <laughs> <laughs> <to God>. mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway it, it, the, the the assumption that women and women and men have different wiring and I think the other thing is it's really important to remember what we've got in common as well. We spend a little, our, our brains are trained to see differences. We we live for the differences. We celebrate the differences, but we often don't sit there and go, actually, we all breathe in and out. You know, we all run away when a tiger ha- approaches us. You know, the the, More the similarities and differences. Well, that's right. That's right. And I spend a lot of time in epidemiology saying, state, you know, let's let's work on the data that we really have reliably. Because people are always looking for things that are anomalous, yeah. and and um, and, and I, I mean I think that's why that spectrum exists actually is because it, it, we 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 kind of have an instinct to try and dichotomise things, and particularly when you look at the way the media treats things now, they're constantly wanting you to to make a decision when things are actually quite complicated. 
Um, in fact, you know they say that the world is divided into two sorts of people. Those who believe the world is divided into two sorts of people. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, I think we'll just take one more question. Look, oh, hard to predict whether it's going to be successful or not, but I think, as Emily alluded to before, it, it may be one of the many pieces in that sort of multi-leveled, multi-faceted uh, approach. Um, why there's mandatory reporting around ch child um, abuse is because the, the child is seen very much as unable to deal with an adult world and is is relatively much less powerful than the, the perpetrator um, and therefore, it, you know, other people should be look, looking out for them. Um, maybe that's true also of the adults who are in, in, a, in, in, a, in a less powerful situation that someone else should be looking out for them as well. And maybe that's what our society should be supporting in a, in a general one-on-one -on -one, but also in a more structural way so that there is a structure in place to, su to support um, that sort of notification. Um, a little bit more of a difficult area where the person... Um, may not want intervention. Um, do they have a right to remain in a violent relationship? Well, yes, they do, um, but maybe they also need to be uh, off, given more obvious opportunities to changing that situation if they want to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it seems to me that from the accounts that I hear, the problem at the moment is that... Um, one of the problems, there's lots of problems, but one of them is actually that... that that people, when they do speak out about domestic violence, they're often not taken seriously or they're not supported. And I think as as doctors going out there, you will encounter situations where you'll see something that's a bit strange, and you'll think, why? You know, and, and you'll be in a position to say, are you okay? You know, mm. that, that kind of are you okay thing. Um, so I think probably we do need to really start. One of the things that you know, mandatory reporting is one thing, and I actually can't, I wouldn't know what the effect that would be. It'd be really interesting to look at environments where that does happen and see if it's mm. worked in those places but we do also need to just respond better when people do tell us this and the other thing is providing alternatives for people so there's an incredible shortage of refuge housing and all sorts of alternatives for people um, so there's also um, so, so really just doing the best by the people by the things that we already know about is probably you know a good start um, and then the, so because and then the question about getting people to report it more I mean, it's, it's, I would have thought that support is a really big part of that. Um, you know, in, in the UK, they say they've got like about five times as many animal refuges as women's refuges. Mm. I mean, that might be one of those factoids. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't take it that way. <laughs> no, but I do think that people find it much easier to compare to care for a sort of innocent, fluffy thing mm. than for a fully grown human. Like that <laughs> sheep today, the oh, sheep that hadn't been shorn. Oh, no, oh, no it's <laughs> heartrending. The RSPCA, yeah. Make sure look at the ABC News. I did say that. All right, so I think we'll wrap up. On that surreal note, yes. Go out and look after your sheep. Thank you all for coming. I think this has been a, a really interesting topic. It's something we haven't really covered a lot yet in medical school, but it's something, uh, I mean, gender-based violence is something that we're all going to encounter in our careers, um, both within Australia and our own backyard and also overseas if you go over uh, to do any global health work. So I think it's a really interesting topic. And thank you so much uh, to all of our speakers um, for sharing your experiences with us. Um, I've got a little... 
something just to oh. throw. Oh, yeah. oh, just, just getting pizza. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I think everyone's really enjoyed it. <laughs> we have some really great it's a shame to end it, but yeah, thank you again so much for it's coming. A pleasure. And everyone, stay tuned for upcoming Scora and Ensign events. Uh, I also just really um, want to quickly I'm thank Lucy uh, Kelly, who unfortunately isn't here, which is my Scora partner, and um, she did a lot in organising tonight as well. I'll just write your name. Guys, uh, first of all, I want to thank Katie for her. Oh, don't worry. It's better off in my book. I'll lose my book. Do we all have a... Dot. I don't know. Also, just want to put a plug in for the Ensign Annual General Meeting, which is happening on Thursday the 17th of September. We're going to be talking about all the things that we've done this year and um, just talking about all the different roles and then sign that you can get involved with for next year. So I recommend all of you to come and um, yeah, get in. Thank you. We've done an update of the story, actually. Have you seen our publication? No. Well, there's an excuse for me to email. I'll show our publication. So that's got.